Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics. Data analysis and important topics from around the world of paramedic practice from the College of Paramedics. Hello and welcome to an, uh, another edition of the College of Paramedics Paramedic Insights podcast. My name's Gary Strong. I've got a difficult subject to talk about today, but one that's really, really important for paramedics and all those who work with them to be aware of. Uh, we're going to be discussing the issue of domestic violence. And so I think I should say up front that if this triggers any concerns for you, then during the podcast, uh, my guest, Michelle O'Keefe, will be telling us, uh, giving us lots of good information really about how to uh, raise these concerns and address them. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Michelle. Um, Michelle is the uh, Service Improvement Coordinator for the Safeguarding and Domestic Violence Team uh, in Leeds in Yorkshire. Uh, she's spoken to paramedics before and done some great teaching for us. Michelle, it's, it's great to uh, have you along uh, today thank you for your time you're uh, welcome. tell us a bit about yourself tell us a bit about yourself and your role so i have been working in the domestic violence field for around 20 years um i started out working in a local uh, domestic violence support project and then in 2006 i qualified as an idva which is independent domestic violence advocate uh, working with high-risk victims. And at that time, the MARAC, the Multi-Agency Risk Assessment Conference, um, were just beginning to emerge. So um, areas were developing and setting up the MARACs, which I supported in our area across Bradford. So I did lots of work in the MARAC. I was MARAC coordinator for a short period of time. I supported the um, development and delivery of the specialist domestic violence courts that were set up around about the same time. And also I developed and delivered uh, group work programs to vulnerable young women um, and worked with the children's coordinator around that. In 2009, I went to work in Newhall Prison which is a, a women's prison that I think houses about a maximum 400 women. And I set up a project called the Athena Project, which was the first of its kind in a women's prison. Um, and it was there to support victims of domestic and sexual violence in custody, women in custody. Um, lots of really, really vulnerable women with complex needs in prison. So it was a really useful um, project. It was really rewarding, but it was really difficult and sometimes really distressing. So I was there for five years and then I moved on. After 15 years, I think, of frontline work, I decided that I wanted to take a step back and work at a more strategic level. And a role came up uh, within Leeds City Council's safeguarding and domestic violence team. So I got that. And my, my roles vary and our team are really flexible around what we cover and uh, kind of initiatives that we work on. Some of the key things that I've worked on in this role so far have been um, we have introduced 
implementing routine inquiry in GP practices across Leeds. So working with the CCG safeguarding team in Leeds, we are rolling that out uh, and supporting GPs in any way we can to introduce screening for domestic violence and abuse into practice. And with some really positive, you know, initially it, it was difficult trying to get GPs engaged, but we've had some really positive results. So we're rolling that out across Leeds. And then I also do some work with the four other area leads across West Yorkshire. And so there's lots of work, joint work that we're doing across West Yorkshire as well. Thanks, Michelle, and, and thanks for sharing your uh, experience with us. One of the things uh, I've wondered from the perspective of a paramedic, uh, whether they're working in a GP practice or uh, you know, driving around uh, in an ambulance, is just thinking about how widespread the problem of domestic abuse is, because you know, when we're uh, out on the road, as it were, driving through the streets of Leeds or anywhere else, um, uh, we're probably not aware of how often it's happening. Uh, can you say a bit about how common it is? Yeah, it's certainly more common than people actually think. Um, the The statistics are kind of one in four women will experience domestic abuse wow. at some time in their life and one in six men. Um, actually, we're now looking at the figure is almost one in three women um, and that's really current from the Office of National Statistics. And that is more of a true figure, I would think, because domestic violence and abuse is hugely underreported. So we kind of go with the statistics that have been reported. Two women a week are killed by a current or former partner in England and Wales alone. The police on average will receive over 100 calls a day, sorry, every hour. Um, relating to domestic abuse and that's across England and Wales and the year ending March 2019 the police recorded 746,000 domestic abuse related crimes now this was an increase um, of 24% from the year before and it's it's really difficult to establish why that might be but one of the things is that it may be that there's an improved recording system within the police forces mm-hmm. across yeah. uh, the country yeah. and also um an increase in reporting so victims feeling um that they're able to report to the police um just one of the things that I, I want to highlight though is that domestic violence and abuse is a gendered issue um and women are disproportionately affected by it so women are more likely to experience more serious harm and homicide and that is absolutely reflected in domestic homicide reviews across the country um what I will say is that we absolutely do recognise that men can be victims and it's important uh, to highlight that all specialist services will offer support to both men and women. And the NICE guidance does state uh, that it can happen to both men and women, but it is more commonly inflicted on women by men. So quite often when I'm talking about the issue, I may say um women are affected or female victims you know but that's not to say that I absolutely do accept that men do experience domestic violence and abuse. Yeah thank you for that and and I think the only one who's read any of the um, sort of serious reporting that, that that's done um, in the papers will will be aware of that that's um, you know it, it, it's quite shocking for those of us that don't 
think about it um, uh, all of the time, which of course you have to do in a professional capacity. Um, yeah. I, I'm interested in the, the, the sort of upping it to thinking it's more likely to be one in three women. I, I, I'm picking from what you said that that was before we had COVID. Uh, and, and I should uh, add perhaps for anyone who's listening to this off in the future that it's the 22nd of May uh, 2020 and uh, we're in the middle of the uh, the response to COVID in the UK. So uh, any thoughts on that, Michelle? Yeah, I think there's always been a feeling that the, that the number was higher and that it would be one in three women and not one in four. But in terms of COVID, the impact, there has been a significant increase of calls into the National Domestic Violence Helpline. Um, there's an increase of 49% since COVID, uh, since lockdown. And whilst locally, initially, we didn't see such a huge increase um, in such a short space of time, tracking the numbers, there is a steady rise in the number of um, people calling local domestic violence helplines, and that's reflected across um, all areas. But there's also an increase, because what what organisations, specialist organisations, have had to do is change the way in which they can uh, communicate with victims. So lots of them have created live web chats and there has been a steady increase in web traffic and live chat with victims um, that are using more discrete technology to access services. So the, the other kind of side of the impact is that the availability of refuge spaces has been significantly impacted, obviously, by lockdown. And that's quite often refuges are full uh, when we're, we're not experiencing such difficult times. Lockdown has made it very difficult to move families on um, because the knock-on effect of lockdown is that houses have not been made available and repaired in, in the normal way that they would be if people were able to go out to work. So refugees have been at capacity and unable to take kind of um, women and family, children, women, children into the refugees. So local authorities have had to look at other ways in which they can accommodate victims, both male and female. And one of the things that they're doing, obviously, we would always say contact your local housing office if it's an emergency and you need emergency accommodation. But hotels, I don't know whether you're familiar, Gary, that hotels are being used to kind of accommodate victims I, I didn't know that but it does kind of make sense um you just just from i you i just read one article in the guardian recently and it opened my eyes to the fact that where most of us are you know isolating and, and finding our space for the the women who've, who've gone to refuges actually they're pretty crowded uh, and you know yes. the, the the covid uh, risk of transmission is very high if somebody were to um, contact uh, you know, contract covid in those environments is a really challenging situation isn't it yes yeah um and i think um initially when when lockdown was announced there was a lot of confusion around whether the police would be responding to um calls of domestic violence and abuse whether uh, support services were operating and, and available to support victims if they needed to flee and they absolutely the message is they absolutely are police are still responding to calls from victims experiencing domestic violence and abuse and housing and refuge providers are still operating. It might be they're doing it in a different way, but they're certainly operating to support victims who need that support. That, that's good to know. So 
uh, I, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, the the needs, I think, the learning needs of, of the paramedic community and, and ambulance staff in particular, although bearing in mind a lot of paramedics are working in primary care and, and other areas now. And, and I guess holding these two things in tension, because in normal times, I often think we have a fairly uh, unique role going in of people going in and out of people's homes all the time uh, and the potential to be the first person to spot signs that something is not right in a domestic situation is actually quite high uh, and and experienced paramedics will will develop uh, their instincts and their observations uh, become quite finely tuned I think so I want to ask you really, what are the kind of uh, signs we should be uh, looking out for? You're bearing in mind, I guess you could be going to somebody with chest pain, somebody with a fall, somebody with you know, any kind of incident that we go to could have a, a yes. hidden element of domestic violence. So so what, what sort of things should be getting our radar up, as it were? So there's there's a number of things. Um, I think in terms of um, patient presentation, there there will be things I'm I'm sure paramedics will be completely familiar with around bruising, broken bones, burns, stab wounds, injuries inconsistent with an explanation or cause. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that 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 is really kind of common and probably both for paramedics attending. At people's addresses and calls into GP practices is that frequent calls to services with vague complaints. You know, the person kind of will contact services or call the ambulance and the complaints can be really vague. And, and it actually, it's a cry for help. It can yeah. be a cry for help. The person might describe themselves as accident prone or silly and provide vague explanations, injuries that appear to be hidden or in uncommon places. Um, So all those kinds of things that probably would prompt a paramedic to think this just doesn't sit right. In terms of somebody, the emotional and psychological symptoms, depression, fear, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, sleep disorders, because it is victims who experience domestic violence are twice as likely to experience depression. Yeah, yeah. And the impact of abuse can lead for victims to self-harm, um, have suicidal ideation or actual suicide attempts. And there is some research out there from Sylvia Walbit, and what she found was she estimated that around three women a week commit suicide as a result of domestic violence and around a hundred thousand women attempt it each year you know so that that's kind of there in front of us isn't it when when we've got somebody it's a cry for help yes uh, yeah uh, it's certainly um you know reflecting on on my own career uh, you you can think of a lot of incidents you've been to with thinking you know was, was there more to this that than, than meets the eye yes yes and I think that's really important because I don't. What we tend to, and I, I was going to talk about professional curiosity. And um, mm. what we talk to practitioners about is that if you feel that something is just not quite right with a the situation, then it's probably not. And so we're kind of encouraging practitioners to be really professionally curious. Um, in I that like kind that. of yeah. yes. Yeah. So the, again, there was some research done by Standing Together in Hammersmith and Fulham, and that was largely around GP practices, and they selected 
I think it was 32 domestic homicides um, and unpicked the, the kind of findings and what they found was that GPs in particular for this particular piece of research did miss opportunities. So we're kind of saying people need to be more professionally curious. Um, just to going back to uh, emotional and psychological symptoms, another key indicator is where whether there are, you know, they're presented with drug or alcohol issues. If you've got a victim yeah. um, that's, that's using drug or alcohol, misusing drugs, because that can often be enforced by perpetrators or victims will sometimes use drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism. Um, and again, I think it's what we're presented with sometimes doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, it, it, I, I used the word radar a little while ago, and it just seems like it, it ought to be active the whole time, really. Uh, and if your curiosity is aroused, to, to follow it up. Um, yes. And, you know, as, as paramedics, we all need to be familiar with the um, the details of our own local safeguarding procedures and, and you know, what to yes. do if you suspect a problem. But I wonder, you know, you're there on the scene, ambulance based paramedic. You're you've got st quite strong suspicions that there is uh, a, an issue of potential violence going on here, but you can't get, you really can't get the uh, the patient or the victim to say anything at all about it. Well, what do you do next? Okay, can I just quickly go back to I think one of the other key kind of things or indicators to look out for again is if you turn up at a property and you've got an intrusive other person present in yeah. consultations, um, you know, kind of the patient appears submissive or afraid to speak in front of the partner or other family members. Or you may have an aggressive partner who's dominant and over-attentive who may stop that person from talking. Conversely, you, the partner may also intentionally present as charming because not all perpetrators present as perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that's where it, it kind of gets really difficult to think, you know, we have to kind of put to one side what 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 that person might be saying and think about the bigger picture. Because um, what can happen if you've got a perpetrator who's presenting as, in a, sorry, presenting as agreeable or pleasant and charming, mm -hmm. um, it might then mean that the person experiencing domestic violence and abuse could seem difficult and disordered and obstructive you know so so there's there's kind of dynamics going on it's complex all the time it? yeah. it's very complex so one of the things that if paramedics turn up and they suspect one of the things that i want to say from the outset is that that victims of domestic violence and abuse have often lived in this situation for many many years and that doesn't make anything right. But what they've learned to do is they've learned to apply coping strategies. Yeah. So they're able to um, deal with certain situations, diffuse. So they know the perpetrator much more than anybody else does. And, you know, it, it feels like this is what this is not a positive, but actually it is a positive for a victim because they've got their own coping mechanisms. And so. So when you turn up, I think quite often when we're delivering training sessions and people say, if they disclose, what do I do? You kind of go with what they're telling you. 
because if you run mm. off and think I need to ring the police, I need to report this into children's or adults, you that person who's disclosed is going to feel really unsafe and probably not tell you anything else. So it's it kind of is just to bear in mind that this person has tried and tested mechanisms to be able to deal with this perpetrator. Um, yeah. And it's also, sorry, go on. I was just going to say for, for, for paramedics, I think that is a critical learning point because uh, we like to find things and fix them. Um, you know, yes. we, we there's very much in, in our DNA and our emergency care background that if somebody's heart stops, we're going to attempt resuscitation. If somebody's airway is blocked, we're going to open it. Uh, and, you know, it, we're learning. We, we're getting much better at dealing with long-term situations and long-term conditions. We have to because uh, the, the population and the workload has changed. But I, I guess it's really important to think that in some aspects, what you're describing with domestic violence situation, it's a long-term condition. Uh, yeah. You can't um, you can't fix it on scene. No, no. It's domestic violence isn't a one-off event. It's a process. So, you know, what what you might kind of be confronted with a situation is very often not the first time that that has happened, you know. So um, it is a process. I think it's important before I kind of move on to um, what should they do if they suspect and this person's not disclosing, it's important to understand why somebody might not disclose. And I, I won't spend too much time on this, but there are some key kind of factors. Um, the fear of re retribution from the perpetrator. So if they disclose, is this going to make their situation worse? And they will know better than anybody else. Sure. There's a real fear that if there are children involved, that those children are going to be removed from that victim. Yeah. And quite often what you've got is a perpetrator constantly telling that victim that this is what's going to happen. And I think when we look at our processes, certainly in Leeds, if the police attend a domestic incident and there are children present, they will then contact the duty and advice team and say, we attended a domestic incident, there were children present. And then the duty and advice team within children's uh, social care will contact the victim. Now, that's that's to offer support and to see if they can provide any kind of support and guidance. But what that victim will think is they're going to take my children away if I don't leave him. You know, not not in all cases, but it's a very real fear. So they may not they may not disclose for fear of the fact that they may you know, the, the kind of consequences of them disclosing will lead to children's social work services getting involved and then ultimately what their kind of fear is that their children will be removed. And so having said that, it's really important to talk to somebody if that's what you're going to do and say children's social work service are there to support you, you know, um, and, and kind of getting them on board with that. So cultural issues. So you may have... Um, a victim who can't disclose because they've not got indefinitely to remain in the country and that they have been threatened that they will be deported by their partner or sent back if they talk about what's happening. Mm. Um, fear of causing family breakdown and bringing shame and dishonour on a family and again possibly leading to potential honour-based abuse. Um, yeah and honour-based killings. So not believing that anything can be done for them, believing that their experience is too trivial to mention. And I think if we talk about domestic violence and abuse, and it, certainly in my experience, when you talk to 
a victim that I spoke to quite recently, um, we had gone to do a review. It, she had been seriously assaulted by her husband and he had tried to attempt to take his own life and they both survived. And she very kindly agreed for us to, to look at the lead up to that incident and then their relationship in you know as a whole. And what the first thing she said to me was, I'm, I'm not a victim of domestic violence because my husband never hit me in all the 25 years. But what he did do was control her for 25 years. And albeit it was really subtle control, what led to the serious assault was her separating from him. And separation is a really high risk time. So most homicides take place when somebody has said they're leaving or ha they've just left. So there's there's lots of balancing and juggling and kind of safety kind of mechanisms that need to be in place for people. And for me, the, the people that, the, who are best placed to do this are the specialist domestic violence support projects, which, you know, I, I'm going to give you lots of kind of information around what paramedics can do. But ultimately, they if they are aware of who the specialist support projects are in their area, they can contact them and can and discuss concerns and with your safeguarding leads and so on. So I've digressed a little bit, Gary, I'm sorry. That's so great. in terms of um, if they won't disclose, what I would always say is that professionals can take the initiative, particularly health professionals, and ask direct questions. Um, so there is... I think there is a reluctance for people, for, for practitioners and health practitioners in particular, a reluctance and a, a lack of confidence to, to directly ask somebody about domestic violence and abuse. And actually, what research shows is that victims of domestic violence and abuse want to be asked. So we've got kind of two things going on. We've got professionals that, that don't want to do it in case they, they, they kind of... Um, upset that person or that person is uh, I can't think of the word if that person is um... I'm not sure what word you're looking for but you, it's a fascinating <laughs> insight because it reminds me of something we've we've learned in recent years about uh, yeah, persons with suicidal ideation and that for historically there was always this fear of asking people whether they'd ever thought about taking their own life um, which I, I, I think we've overcome now because we, we realise that actually you're not going to prompt yes. somebody by asking that question. And and it, it seems to me there's a bit of a parallel there that if you say outrightly to somebody, you know, are you being abused or, or worse to that effect, it, it creates a much more honest situation rather than just yes. sort of tiptoeing around it, hoping they might say something. Yeah, I think it's it's particularly important how that's asked. Yes. Um, it should always, always only be done if that person is alone. Um, yes, and not in front of anybody yeah. and the thing is the greater the level of comfort of the person asking so if they feel really comfortable asking that question the greater the level of comfort of the victim you know so again we we deliver lots of training to midwives and health visitors who do routine inquiry and we will always say please don't start by saying I'm really sorry to ask you this because what you're doing is you're making that question into a negative and that person may feel really embarrassed mm. to say, well, actually I am. So the greater your level of comfort, always when that person's alone. And the question I was going to ask you around what's the position with paramedics around interpreters, Gary? So if they 
they go to uh, an incident and they suspect that an, in, an injury has been caused by domestic abuse, but this person can't speak English. Um, so we have access to language lines, uh, which is right, uh, yeah. one level. Um, it's it's not in, in a sensitive situation like this. I don't think that's going to provide all the answers by any means. I, I think we find that it would be interesting to hear from our listeners, but uh, different ambulance trusts will have different levels of, of resources and access to interpreters. And I guess it also depends also, you know, how common the language is. I, I guess I'm saying um, the answer may well vary around the country. Yes, yeah. And and so it, I suppose it's something to kind of bear in mind and something to, to think about if that mm. situation, um, you know, did present itself. Um, just in terms of, so so we would always encourage, you know, health practitioners in particular to ask somebody about domestic violence and abuse, if it's safe to do so, if that person's on their own, and if that practitioner is comfortable doing that. Suggested kind of questions, particularly around paramedics, um, has your partner caused these injuries? Are you afraid of your partner? Um, does your partner or someone at home bully you or insult you? And there are stuff around control. So so you could do, does your partner try to control you, for example, not letting you have any money or go out of the house? Yeah. But more recently, um, we had a, a conference in November, a coercive control conference, where we had um, a chap who came to speak and he made a fantastic point around, instead of asking, does your partner try to control you? Ask them what the partner prevents them from doing or what are you not allowed to, are the things that you're not allowed to do? Mm. Um, because then that gets them thinking about the restrictions that have been imposed on them. So it might be they're not allowed to go to the shops on their own or they're not allowed to see family and friends. And that gives you a bit of a clearer picture yeah. of whether there is an element of control in the relationship. The other thing I did just want to touch on, um, and it's too it, it's really too long a subject to be able to kind of um, cover it in this session, is that the response should be from a, a trauma-informed approach. And I don't know whether paramedics have had training around trauma-informed practice. And essentially what that is, is that we, we approach somebody recognising um, that the impact that if they've experienced trauma, the the adverse effects that that might have on that person, and and this for me it kind of the examples I would use would be lots of women that I worked with in custody who had experienced childhood trauma, and then their life had spiralled out of control, and they had ended up in prison, but within and amongst that had experienced domestic violence, sexual violence and can present as quite difficult and quite challenging. And that presents a problem when you are trying to help somebody. Um, but it's really important that survivors in crisis are not viewed as manipulative, attention-seeking or destructive, but they're trying to cope in the present moment. And I think particularly if that makes sense, Gary, and I think particularly if you've got a perpetrator there, it makes it so difficult for somebody to express themselves and it might be Certainly somebody who's experienced trauma, it might be expressed in anger. Does that, yeah, does that make that's, sense? It's, it's incredibly helpful. Uh, and you know, for paramedical audiences, 
we need to um, differentiate a little because we're used to thinking of, of trauma as anything that involves an impact, um, which I suppose mm. uh, uh, you, could, you could widen that to um, the, the emotional and psychological impact of all the many different kinds of um, you know, abusive activities that would come under the broader heading of, of trauma. But um, yet yeah, what, what you're saying makes perfect sense. You, you, the, the, the victims have had to learn to deal with things that, that um, a lot of us as paramedics perhaps um, haven't imagined, uh, yes. let alone seen. Um, yes. And, and you know, it, it's coming to terms with, uh, it's back to communication, isn't it? To, to be an expert at communication, you have to understand where the other person is coming from. And, and that's really yes. hard in this situation. It is because you're presented with a situation and don't have any background details, do you? So it, it is really difficult. What I will say is that the for victims who disclose, how the person they're disclosing to responds is really, really important. Because if it's a good response, you are likely to get them to talk about what's happened. If it's a bad response, they're unlikely to tell anybody for a long time. So it's about reassuring somebody that thanking them for telling you you know because it's very very difficult for you know it's very difficult for victims to talk about their experiences for lots of reasons shame fear embarrassment and whether they'll be believed or not or whether they'll be blamed or so if somebody does disclose thank them for doing it and acknowledge how difficult Mm -hmm. that must be for them Acknowledge that you believe them, what they're saying, that it's not their fault and that their safety and their children's safety is your priority at that point. You know, it kind of all goes down to those basic human, basic human kind of it's kindness in it and how how we respond to people. But I have had, you know, um, people that I've worked with over over the years who've said that they had a really negative response and then didn't speak to anybody about the abuse for years la- until years later. Yeah, it's a critical moment, isn't it? And yeah. I guess uh, it, it would be remiss of us not to talk about the current situation as well because those critical moments are made much harder, uh, certainly for ambulance-based paramedics, and they're, they're likely to be wearing PPE of some sort, um, you know, maybe a mask over their face, uh, maybe even a full-blown hood, uh, and you know that just just makes communication all the more difficult. And yes. uh, you know, we've in some of our other podcasts, we've heard some great tips and tricks for working in PP and trying to improve on that. But it, it, it it's hard, isn't it? Uh, it's going to be it hard is. to uh, respond to you when you're uh, dressed in a, a bit of a, a strange costume uh, coming into there. Yeah. And and you've got somebody who's already distressed yeah. with the situation that's happened. I think for me, it does go back to the, the how somebody. It's difficult to see somebody's face, yes. isn't it, when they kind of have PPE equipment on? But if they're kind, if they appear kind, if they, you know, kind of reassuring, um, that makes a huge difference how how that would be done and how that would be interpreted with somebody with all that equipment on yeah I, I, that that's i think you're dead right i think in the um one of the many things we've learned during the last eight or nine weeks is that you know uh the empathy that that we you have to have as as a health and care professional um if you're wearing all this funny gear you've got to turn that into overdrive somehow and and, and turn it yes. on all the more so that it's really obvious to people out you know in, in the environment that you're in 
Um, big, big, yes. big challenge for, for people on the, uh, yeah. busy shifts. And equally, when you've got, if this is a domestic incident and paramedics are called out, what you've got is a really distressed person who is trapped 24 hours a day, seven days a week with that perpetrator in a really, you know, it's a really distressing time for everybody, isn't it? So it is a, it is about ramping up that kind of um, empathy and general kind of kindness. Yes. Uh, and reassuring somebody in that way. I think one of the things that I did want to kind of mention was that if somebody if somebody does disclose or if somebody's reluctant dis- to disclose and you are transporting that person to hospital, it's always worth speaking to hospital staff saying I you know, this person's not said, but I am really concerned that there's domestic violence and abuse because then they may have the opportunity to have a conversation with that person. Yeah, and, and uh, equally with, with um, you know, the, the written reporting procedures, and, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, if anything's changed, but my understanding around safeguarding has always been that if you've got a suspicion, it's better to report because nobody's going to yes. take drastic action on the basis of one report if you've got it, if you happen to have got it wrong. Um, but usually there's there's a, a gathering of concerns around somebody, isn't there? The paramedic might report something which has been reported by um, uh, a care worker of some other sort in the situation or, or, or um, a neighbour. You know, the picture builds, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think never assume, as you're saying, that somebody else is going to report this yeah, um, yeah. because that happens quite often. Never assume that another agency do it. You know, we would much rather have three agencies refer a case into our MARAC than everybody else thinking somebody else has done that. Yeah, yeah, that, that, absolutely. And I think there's also to getting at that historically there's been a bit of a fear of what if I get it wrong, but it's better uh, to... I think to get it wrong and uh, have a low threshold for reporting than to miss something that's significantly amiss in a domestic situation. Yes, yes. Yeah, so no, that that's helpful. And the yeah, and the safeguarding the safeguarding team that's there, you know, are there to talk to you around yeah. any concerns or. Yeah. And I think it's really important to get across to paramedics. Safeguarding isn't just about filling in a form um, on your um, electronic um, patient record or, or your paper record. It, it's not just about the paperwork. You really do need to um, talk to somebody uh, and, and make that referral. Yes. So just going back to if somebody... If somebody does disclose domestic abuse and you believe them to be at high risk of harm, the the the, the kind of um, advice would be always call the police, mm-hmm. particularly if there's a high risk of serious harm or death. If somebody discloses and they're, I mean, it's difficult to assess um, risk in those situations. But if you if they're saying I'm absolutely fine. It, it's always good to encourage them to contact support agencies within their area who can support them, who, regardless of what the decisions they, they're making, that or if I know we kind of suggested to paramedics that they have leaflets and we've got some Z cards in Leeds with all the numbers on, but certainly around um, infection transmission, I'm, they're not able to kind of carry anything like that, are they? It's really difficult at the moment. 
but in, in, uh, what might be helpful actually uh michelle if um if you want to send me some links to some of the the national uh, sources of help afterwards we can put these on, yes. the, on the website with the podcast because uh, i think um, yes you uh, it, it's important for paramedics to just have that awareness that uh you gosh I, yeah i may be 30 miles outside my usual area i'm not quite sure who to phone but um i do know that that uh, such and such a charity uh, deals with domestic violence and i can yeah. that kind of thing it's, yeah it's, you know and uh, having having the knowledge and having access to uh, the people who can help is, is, is critically important so if we can if we can offer that uh, a few links the yeah. podcast we can do that. yes absolutely and the other side of that is that don't you know specialist organizations domestic abuse organizations will provide guidance to practitioners and professionals so if if as a professional you just think i need to speak to somebody about this you can ring those helplines and they will provide guidance and support as practitioners and i think that's not used enough so that's yeah. always useful to know that it's not just for victims. You know, professionals can call. That, that's um, really helpful to know, actually. I mean, just in in um, preparing to have a chat to you, I, I had a look at the Refuge website, and it's a mine of information, isn't it, that can uh, just oh, raise your yes. awareness. Really, really uh, helpful yes. stuff. I'd encourage you all, all paramedics to have a look around there. Yeah, and there's a there's also um, a website, Safe Lives website, who do work with organisations across the country, and I'll the, I'll provide you with a link to that. That is, they they break it down into I think there may be um, links for health practitioners and what to do and what to look out for and the signs and what supports available. So yes, I mean. Certainly 20 years ago, we didn't have the internet, so we used to print off leaflets and mm -hmm. hand them up to victims. But, you know, we've got a whole, whole range of information at our fingertips, haven't we? Yeah, yeah that's right. And so we, we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, I, I'm conscious that um, we could talk much more, but what you've uh, shared with us has, has been incredibly helpful, I think, for, for the paramedic world, both in their current strange locked down uh, PPE type responding situation uh, but also beyond that uh, you know this problem's not going to go away and, and, and I firmly 100% know that paramedics can be part of the solution if we if we're well educated around this so thank you ever so much for your your time and uh, input on this um, I wondered as we finish um, if there's any sort of couple of top tips you want to offer and also i believe um you know if any because it's potentially somebody could be listening to this and thinking actually i i have been a victim you know never mind whether i'm a paramedic or a paramedic student or whatever i need to do something about myself um uh, you know what what should they do uh, I, i've kind of jumbled two things into one there sorry michelle but um <laughs> I, guess, you know, I, I, I you your your um experience has been um really interesting and, and, and useful to, to listen and learn from um so yeah any, any 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 sort of final tips for paramedics or for anybody who might be listening who's a victim yeah i i, I suppose one of the things that that i always kind of try and and will remember actually forgotten with this um podcast is that when we talk about victims of domestic violence and abuse and when we're in the context of myself talking to you as another professional we tend to think of people out there experiencing it so the people that we're going out to the people that we're going you know um, to provide a service to and actually there are people around us 
every day, you know, who we work with, next door neighbours, family, friends who who could be experiencing domestic violence and abuse. And and certainly there are the services out there are, you know, I would always encourage people to contact support services if they're experiencing it. It's really difficult to do initially, yeah. but it's really rewarding once it's done because what you do is get people who understand your situation and can help you through that the other thing i would always say is that that if there is a situation where somebody needs to call the police do so um and we certainly in leeds we were at one of our campaigns was around because neighbors hear things and people come into the house may see or hear things and if you are concerned about somebody's welfare ring the police you yeah. know um because we wouldn't we could ring the police and have the person fall out with us but they're still alive we could not ring the police and have the person next door to us killed by the partner yeah. you know it's not our responsibility but we need to get better at being confident in in a talking about it in supporting people and being aware of the services that are available out there yeah, yeah. thank you um yeah that's uh, i can't um can't say thank you enough really that you've given so much insight into um a, a situation that, that's that's bigger and more challenging i guess than, than many of us realize but uh, the good news is that um with with services like yours in Leeds and and joining up with what those of us working in the community can spot and observe, you know, we, we can bring hope to the victims and, and that's that's kind of it's the best thing we can do. We're, we're paramedics because we want to make a difference and and I believe from everything you've shared, Michelle, we can make a huge difference to somebody's life by saying yes. doing the right thing at the right time. Yes. Mm. Absolutely. So thank you. Um, uh, this has been another uh, Paramedic Insight podcast. Very grateful to Michelle O'Keefe for your time. Um, we'll, we'll finish by um, encouraging everybody to, to stay safe and stay in touch. Uh, if you have any comments or questions or concerns about anything we've talked about, you can get in touch via the College of Paramedics website. Um, thank you for listening and thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Paramedic Insight Podcast from the College of Paramedics.